Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Dan Klein of George Mason University. Dan is the editor of Econ Journal Watch. Dan, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. Dan, our topic today is disagreement and how science and social science arrive at truth uh, and uh, consensus. It's a follow-up to my recent confessional podcast with Robin Hansen. I thought it would be useful to get your perspective on the issue, and we're uh, taping this on February 5th, 2009. Do you think there's progress in the social sciences? Does the academic enterprise produce more light than heat or more heat than light? Um, I guess I'm kind of pessimistic about that. I'm not that happy. I mean, you know, I, I don't think there's any way for people to approach this question, as particularly as it concerns the most important things, which are ideological in nature. We're talking about public policy, the way uh, rules in society should be. And I personally don't think it's useful to try to approach the broad question you just asked as though you can somehow separate your own sensibilities about those matters in the way you approach the the larger question the meta question if you like that you asked and 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 that's why uh i think it's important you know to say up front that, you know, I'm one of these people who think that we have too much government intervention. I think the culture is too socially democratic. I think that's a big part of what's going on with these, these social sciences. Um, there's, a, I believe that there's a sort of groupthink problem writ large, both, both in a narrower sense, if you look at the, the pyramids of individual academic disciplines, history, psychology, sociology. There's a sort of groupthink dynamics going on <clears throat> in each of those. I also would even say, though, that there's a broader society-wide groupthink, which in a sense um, descended on us uh, with the decline of liberalism, classical liberalism. So my whole take is 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 interwoven with those other sensibilities on this so my answer is yes and it's because i see all of these policies and all of these opinions around me that i do think are misguided let let me unravel some of that or untangle it because there's there's a bunch of different threads in there um and particularly i want to talk about uh revealing one's own ideology and then then i want to talk about the group think um I've always, I think I mentioned this in a couple other podcasts, but I've always resented it deeply when I'd be labeled as a, quote, conservative economist. One, I'm not particularly conservative, but just the whole idea that I have a ideological label is disturbing to me. And because I used to think, and I've had second thoughts about this, as listeners know, but I used to think, look, I have my ideology. Sure, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't hide it. But that's distinct from my role as an economist because as an economist, I'm just a scientist. I'm just seeking out truth. I'm weighing evidence. And yes, it's true that most of the surveys and data that I find convincing seem to confirm my opinion. But that's because those are the good ones. And as listeners well, know, I've become sort of uh, more realistic, I think, about my own biases over the, over the years. And I think uh, 
but I think most economists would disagree with me. I think most economists would say, yes, they hold, they hold my original view. Yes, you can you, you have your hat as social scientist and you have your hat as neighborhood across the fence debater on you know what's the best policy of the day, but but I keep those separate. And journalists, mm -hmm. for example, I was just talking to some journalists, they say that they like the idea of the same thing. Of course, I vote a particular way every time. Yes, I have a bias uh, internally, but I don't let that affect my reporting because right. I'm objective. I'm a journalist. I'm a professional, and a professional knows how not to cheer in the in the press box. So, uh, you know, in, except for sports where there is some cheering in the press box, uh, most people in the media like to think that they're independent, uh, objective seekers of truth. So, what what you're suggesting, and I've come to agree with part of it, is that that's naive. It's an illusion, and it goes against what we understand about human nature, which is that we are affected by these emotional and core values, and we shouldn't expect it to be otherwise. Then it only becomes a question of, of what label I should use. And yeah. You, for example, in an article at the Library of Economics and Liberty, have pushed, I think, an interesting label, the Smith-Hayek label for my identity. So it wouldn't sell too well when I'm on national public radio, not because not of its flavor, but because people have no idea what it is. But if someone said, well, let's hear from Russell Roberts, who's, who's a Smith-Hayek economist, uh, <laughs> that would be troublesome because most people wouldn't – that doesn't convey anything. But – you're suggesting, though, that that would be a better world that we admit and and reveal where we're coming from. Yes, particularly for these broader questions, like like the one you asked me, which is really a philosophy of science or sociology of science question. Gunnar Myrdal, Nobel Prize win winning uh, social democratic economist, not a classical liberal, wrote a book, Objectivity in Social Science, arguing that... Uh, not only is it legitimate to um, disclose your ideological sensibilities, but that it's very useful. It, it alerts the reader to um, the what you know ways that you might be biased. It alerts. It's like a kind of disclosure, like a vested interest kind of disclosure, because after all, ideological sensibilities are commitments that we carry around with us. Um, and, and are likely to bias you know not just uh, inferences we might what we might make, but formulations of the very problem and selection of the topics, the positions, the arguments that we consider. So he, he, may, he wrote a whole book arguing in favor of uh, ideological dis disclosure or self-disclosure. Other economists <coughs> like Frank Graham and recently Peter Lewin have also endorsed this kind of self-disclosure. But I think if you went around the profession today at, at the top level, not throughout, but at the top level, meaning if you went to the the people that we would consider, that the profession would consider the top 1,000 economists, which would be a huge portion of the people who do influential research uh, over, that would overwhelmingly include those folks, and you say, what kind of economist are you? Uh, they would say, well, I went to X, where X would be their university. I got a PhD from X. In fact, I just heard someone make this claim, uh, where X is a consensus top five uh, PhD program. And he said, well, of course, anyone who goes to X is a finely is a well-trained economist and therefore understands what works and what doesn't work. And that's end of story. It's like saying uh, you want a bridge mm -hmm. built by um, a, an engineer, you get a good engineer, and that's the end of the story. So if you want to fix the economy today in its current yes. situation, you just need somebody well-trained at a, at a good 
first-rate yes. university. So they wouldn't label themselves, a lot of folks. I think they'd say, I have no ideological bias. I'm just uh, a truth seeker. Do you think I'm right? And what would you do about it if I am? I think you're generally right. And I think that that claim is partly disingenuous when you hear it and partly not just naive. Um, Self-deception is what part of what you're saying. Yes, yes, I agree. Um, it's somewhat disingenuous because I think a lot of these guys know that uh, there's certain people they'll hang around with at a cocktail party and others they won't. And it's not necessarily because of who's an economist. It's because of things like ideology and who their sentiments really coordinate with, you know, who, who really sees the world the same way that they do. Um, it's partly naive because, you know, they see what they've been trained in, the normal science, right? The practices of normal science, the core courses and publishing and the journals and and they don't, I don't think, think that hard about the norms in normal science and the way those norms have evolved to, you know, pre exclude certain kinds of arguments, exclude certain kinds of discourse, um, keep the discussion on what I call between the 40 yard lines, kind of an establishment focus where anything outside of that, uh, talking about more radical reforms is somehow being an advocate or being normative or, or what have you. Um, so I do think there's a lot, and there's ways also just in which I think economic theory is, is done that, um, eclipse a lot of important ideas like Hayekian ideas about discovery and the richness of knowledge. Um, so, so I just think they're naive to a good extent about how norm normative as it were, they are in doing what they call positive economics. Well, let me, let me turn to the groupthink issue because I think they, it, there's a useful way to come out of this discussion into that one. Um, I sometimes now that I'm more open and honest about this labeling issue, call myself a free market economist, which is a a version of the Smith-Hayek identity uh, that is just better understood uh, in that most people know what – have some idea of what free market means. They may not know what a Smith-Hayek formulation is in your use of it. So one problem with this revelation uh, strategy, this honesty strategy, um, is that it is then prone to um, – uh, Sort of an ad hominem attack. Oh, you're you know. Oh, you're a, you're, you're a free market economist. You're, you're you're like Milton Friedman, but but he's been discredited, uh, hasn't he, by the recent crisis? Or free markets have been discredited by the recent crisis, and so I find having to cope with that. You know, I put a lot on my shoulders if I take that approach, and it, it strikes me that the groupthink problem, which I'd like you to elaborate on, is not unrelated to that problem that. That a certain cultural cocktail party, who's the right circles phenomenon, phenomenon comes into play when you label yourself, and there's a tendency to want to get you know be on the good side, have the good label, and so I wonder if those two things are consistent. That is, given the existence of what I think of as groupthink, uh, does that mitigate against the virtue of being? Um, honest about your your ideology right I, I good points i think there are um drawbacks to self-disclosing and i don't think it's something that you need to overdo um it can rub people the wrong way and it just can be kind of unnecessary and gratuitous to be sure it can also be self-important um a couple of things one thing is that you know 
starting off by declaring you're a free market economist just could draw you into larger issues, all of a sudden kind of changing the topic. Oh, we thought we were going to talk about the current crisis, and now suddenly you're saying all of free market economics is discredited, and we could talk about you know that, which is so much larger, and it's just it just can be distracting. Um, also, there is there are issues of groupthink, even um, sort of within our group, certainly. Um, Groupthink, I think, is is an, a pejorative term. It's 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 pejorative by construction, uh, kind of like rent seeking is. Um, it, it, it's groupthink is um, a, a, a too a too much of a readiness among the group to believe what we consider to be defective ideas. The defectiveness of the ideas is essentially being presupposed by the term and by the analysis. Now, even within, you know, free market libertarian circles, our circles or what have you, we can hey, have, don't label me, Dan. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I don't well, fall into easily into a box. Okay. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Just you. Um, sorry. Even within, you know, uh, uh, groups which have policy judgments like mine, um, there can be groupthink. Certainly, and it's that it's not so much that the policy judgment is defective, but perhaps the arguments, the argumentation for it is defective. So you can have groupthink in the argumentation for a sound policy, and that's a kind of groupthink. You know, think tanks that are kind of hackish or what have you, but maybe you kind of agree with the punchline, the policy punchline, can still very much be immersed in groupthink. So there's groupthink, the, the groupthink uh, analysis can sort of be directed at the policy judgment and then also at the argumentation for the policy judgment and so on. So, and yeah, we all, and groupthink uh, plagues all of, all of our groups. Now, you said it's a deliberately pejorative term. Uh, l let me defend groupthink for a minute, and then I want to let you counter it. Um, and one of the virtues of groupthink is that it creates a, um, uh, a it, Im it embeds a sort of conservatism, small c conservatism, in the evolution of of um, what is thought to be right. And when, you could argue that that's a good thing, right? It's better mm -hmm. that we don't are, aren't all over the place. That's right. <clears throat> that we move in small steps. That we that it should take a big set of new ideas and new evidence before we revise and, and radically mm -hmm. change what what mm -hmm. we believe. And so, uh, give me your counter to that, and then talk about what you think there is in the academic enterprise in the university structure that encourages the wrong kind of groupthink. Okay. Um, First of all, on, on the hazards uh, of not having enough groupthink, um, that's a big Cunian theme. Uh, about Thomas Kuhn. As in Thomas Kuhn, a Kuhn. Um, and, and I'm thinking not so much of the structure of scientific, scientific revolutions, but rather his other work with Deirdre McCloskey so often rightly plays up, The Essential Tension, uh, a selection of essays. He talks about the essential tension between tradition, between keeping two established focal points in science and innovation, right? And scientific uh, creativity. Like you say, if you allow too much to the latter, it kind of gets all over the place and nothing clearly is focal. The, 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 the enterprise is no longer coherent. Uh, it's, and so there's this essential tension between sort of convention and innovation uh, in science, which I think is, I think is quite profound. Um, 
Now, yeah, I definitely think that uh, we can be too much towards convention, uh, uh, too much towards tradition, uh, too much towards affirming uh, certain things of the group, and, and in particular, faith in the leaders of the group, faith in the apex of the pyramid, if you will. Um, and, well, gee, you know, what makes me believe that we should think this or worry about this is simply that we have economic science supposed to be talking about the most important economic issues, coming to judgments on those. And as I see it on a lot of important issues, um, the right answers, as it were, simply are not being um, arrived at well-formulated, expressed, and conveyed through the ecology of the culture, okay? Through, like, like an FDA is a favorite topic of mine. And I think that, I think, first of all, I think, you know, the whole apparatus of the, uh, the whole banned until permitted structure, which really emanates from Congress and, and the FDA administers, um, that whole structure is terribly and tragically misguided and and this isn't some private opinion in fact you know so many economists milton friedman sam peltzman gary becker and many of the scholars who work specifically on the topic reach uh maybe not the radical conclusion but certainly express a liberalization conclusion and when you count noses of all the people who actually express it's very very one-sided um which side towards liberalization of the of the economists who actually express a policy judgment on the fda talking about the food and drug administration go ahead right um and specifically i'm thinking of you know the control and specifically the permitting of new drugs uh they almost all favor liberalization i could get into more specifics if you wanted to but so this is a very major conclusion on a super important topic in some sense as i see it these these economists who express judgments on the issue, okay, reach a conclusion. And yet, if you poll economists at random, they don't have that view of the FDA. In fact, they're rather supportive of the current. So there's a very significant impasse between the issue expressive economists, if you will. So-called, you might call them specialists, but they're not just specialists. They're, That's right. They include people who are just passionate about the topic. Yeah, and, and I don't think we want to discount the Milton Friedman when he has a chapter in Free to Choose. I mean, you don't call him an expert on the FDA, but he's expressing a judgment and making himself accountable to the public for it and his reasons for it. Um, so those issue expressive economists, it's not a very pretty term, but I just don't have a better one. The issue expressive economists often reach a conclusion, particularly in favor of liberalization, much more so than random economists reach a conclusion and um no, wait a minute it's not what you yeah they reach a conclusion that's different from the mainstream that's right than the, than the average economist that's right it's not just that that, that they're more likely to that's have a feeling right. they have a different feeling yeah yes although sometimes the average economists are just you know all over the place yeah. and right. yes yeah, sort of centered in the in, in the middle and, and and they don't really have a clear consensus at all um but 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 the point is this there's a number of very important issues I just feel very confident in 
that are important. It's like a shame. It's almost, you know, like an injustice that uh, the, 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 the knowledge, the enlightenment is not being held up and got, getting out. Okay, so, and so we need to look at what is going wrong, right, in the culture. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the couch. Yeah. Maybe you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe the FDA is a great thing. Yeah. You've, you have some uh, experts at your apex, Milton Friedman, Peltzman, et cetera. Maybe they're wrong, and you're unhappy with the process because it gets to an answer that just happens to be different from yours. What's the source of your confidence that, you, that My you're arrogance. right? Yeah. Well, a number of things. And then know, I want, you can critique the process that produces the re- alternative result to your own if you'd like because that's a useful – That's right. I of, mean that's why we get into – yeah. Well, first of all, Russ, at, there's sort of the entry-level argumentation of uh, what are the benefits, what are the costs, what are the rationales for the FDA? And, you know, all I can – without delving too much in the details, I don't think there's a good market failure rationale for government intervention here at all. Um, Economies of scale – no, you, you, know, you can't do your own testing. I've heard this thousands of times. You can't do your own testing. You need an independent body that is not influenced by industry money to test the reliability and safety of drugs, and that's a role for government. Uh, I don't have to I, agree with that, I Dan, agree you with know, that, but, it, but, but that's the uh, argument. Except the last part in particular doesn't seem to follow at all. There's nothing that's special about government which recommends them to the task and to dictating, you know, the terms of this independent uh, scrutiny and, 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 and permission. Well, they give permission. Um, you know, there are good arguments. There are, there, there are market failure arguments for government activism, and those need to really trace back to arguments about how government in its specialness brings something to the problem which otherwise is lacking. And, and generally speaking, that specialness is its coercive power. And so if there's externalities, you know, maybe there's real externalities to doing basic science, basic scientific research, and it's something we'll otherwise free ride on. Um, that, 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 that to me b- mounts to a good, um, a meaningful market failure argument for government intervention because what the government can bring, it's power to tax, to pay for this, you know, as a plausible, you know, theory about a correction. But in the FDA case and in other so-called consumer protection uh, policies, the government actually doesn't bring anything to the table. I mean, sure, the market might be imperfect, right? It might not be the blackboard perfection and all that. But the rationale has to go further than that. It has to explain how government and its specialness brings something to the problem to correct this. And in the FDA, occupational licensing and others, I don't see that there's any argument for that at all. Now, so we, I mean, we can get into these, you know, no, ground, I ground level details, yeah, I don't want right? to get to them. Let's and stay and then you that. can talk about all the evidence and all the other stuff and all the costs and damage and tragedy of suppressing drug development, which, say. Which, which, you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, but I want to I right. avoid the FDA per se. And let's, let's turn to this issue of why you think the academic enterprise let me, let, me, let me just – can I just finish on the FDA yeah, at the sure. higher level? Go to the yeah, high, next ahead. level because so, – so, you know, I can turn to all these figures, the Milton Friedmans and the Sam Peltzmans and, and the Paul Rubens and John Calfees and all Alex Tabaroxes and all of these guys who do this, do this, make their case, spell it out. Right. But, you know, on the other side, there's not much at all there. 
you know, you say, well, what happens when the other side puts up their case and their, but it's really, I mean, you go look for it. Uh, There's a recent book uh, by, what's her name, uh, Angel, uh, I forget her first name, but a, a doctor wrote a book in defense of the FDA. Okay, I have to confess, I'm confining this to economists. Okay, yeah, you're right, there aren't a lot of economists who no. write. No, and you can say, well, economists have their own stupid group thinking it's the sociologists who get it right. I mean, we do that to them. So, <laughs> so yeah, you're right. The thing is, when you go up, we do start picking and choosing in ways that do, again, invoke yeah. our own choices or our own judgments. And that's why I say there's no way out of this. Right. Um, Honesty, that was better than not. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we get to academic structures? Yeah, I talk, talk about it's, – it's a great point you make about the FDA. It's, I, I haven't really thought about it. I think the – the quote other side, those who think the FDA plays a crucial role in, in, in improving uh, human health, tend to take it as a given. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't quantify it, although maybe in a minute we'll talk about what role empirical evidence might, might have in this debate. But I'm interested in your thoughts on, on the sort of the sociology of academic life and why you think that, again, uh, you and I are in a very much minority opinion about the value of non-quantitative work in economics. We tend to be much more enthusiastic mm. about non-mathematical work and much more skeptical about the virtues of mathematics than the mainstream is in the profession. One possibility is we're wrong. We're misguided. The other is that the profession has set up a set of incentives and rewards that makes it harder for our side to get a hearing. And I think you're sympathetic to that latter view. Is that true? I am. But can I take the academic group think thing and more in terms of ideology? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think what you say about methods and quanti being quantitative relates to, to, to those. But um, I'd rather just focus uh, on the ideology f first. Um, we are very much of a minority in that sense, too. Uh, you know, us free market people. Um, uh, and, and it's not just an economic, I mean, we are in economics, a minority. The Smith-Hayek contingent is perhaps 10% of the people out there. But then when you go to the other social sciences, you know, it's even, it's basically non-existent. I mean, there's practically uh, no free market people, classical liberal people in sociology, history, psychology, and the humanities, um, philosophy. Um, and to the extent that they are dealing with policy issues and politics, and to the extent that they tend towards a contrary view, which I think it's fair to say they do, I would call it a social democratic view, there's a big problem there, okay? There's the defectiveness that I talked about uh, as a kind of... Uh, Explain that again. Well, uh, defectiveness is sort of the starting point for th suspecting groupthink, because groupthink, you know, presupposes defectiveness. And you and me talking about this are going to come to sociology and history and so on with a feeling that there's a basic, a large defectiveness there. FDR, you know, saved uh, America from laissez-faire and the Great Depression and stuff like that, for example, in history. Not that not that they all think that or that that's so much an established thing, but it's a quite common view. It certainly is in the public schools and all that. Another great realm of of, of groupthink and so on. Um, so why is it? How is it? Or how could it be? Maybe stepping back now for, for from the ideology, but how can it be that defective ideas can persist? Okay, let's not ask how they first get established. Okay. Uh, let's assume somehow they can get a focal, uh, a tipping point and get established. How can they persist? I, I would point to two mechanisms in particular. One's more micro and one's more macro within each discipline. 
the more micro is um, what goes on within a department at each university. Um, departments are very autonomous. They're not taking marching orders from deans and, and provosts. They very much make their own personnel decisions, which then more or less get rubber stamped. And the way it works within the department, by and large, is majoritarian politics. Now, if a majority has a certain point of view, um, and if they also believe that sharing that point of view is actually part of the scholarly judgment, okay, which is a very fair belief, as we've been as we've been saying, they will, you know, if they're fifty five percent and they're hiring, they'll become sixty percent, and then they're sixty percent and they're hiring, and they become sixty five percent. And they, I think there's a tendency then at the departmental level for it to go towards uniformity. And heck, Russ, here we are sitting in GMU econ department, and it's, it's, it's pretty uniform. <laughs> it is. It's the only place where it's uniform in the direction that it's uniform that is towards the Smith-Iac classical it, at liberal it, place. At its level of, of station status, yeah. Yeah, and its size. I mean, it's not four yeah. people who've picked a fifth who right. agrees with them. It's... 20 plus people who all take a similar uh, view toward the, the correct not, role. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of diversity here, obviously, but. Not, not all. It's not, not all. It's not all. Uh, it's well, I'm sure we have people voting Democratic in this department. Well, excuse me. I'm sure we have people who vote. <laughs> That's right. You know, there are a lot of That's people right. who don't vote That's because right. they find the whole enterprise. That's right. I I've, never, clear. I've never voted Republican. Yeah, I just want to make it clear. It's not like we're a Republican uh, no. department. I'm sure there are people who do vote Republican, but it's. Uh, there's a preponderance. A mass, of, a mass proponent of a free market, classically liberal yeah, yeah. folks here. And furthermore, while we're at it, you know, I for one do think that the judge, scientific judgment, ought to reflect that. I mean, if someone's not getting um, some of those issues, what I consider right, I doubt them as an economist. Right. Uh, frankly, but I you're mean, in a small group, Dan. Again, well, right. Uh, in this department, do you no. mean? No, I mean no. Out in oh, the in, world. Oh, in the world, yeah, absolutely. But I'm just saying that that I, I, comp I conform to my theory of what happens in departments that way, and so there's this tendency towards uniformity within the department. Okay, now where does the department look to for its norms of and standards of quality? You know, fairness. Uh, excellence, excellence, yeah. focal points for all that, and it looks to the established structures of its discipline okay and so then there's the wider discipline which has a pyramidal structure um in its in the rankings of departments you know harvard stanford princeton mit and what have you are going to be looked up to and followed very much in this way as well as journals um publishers and things of that nature and so you have a pyramid that really um leads all of these departments um, so, this, so, you know, the history department at a university, the history department, for that matter, George Mason University, in an existential sense, is not so much a creature of George Mason University. It is a creature of history. Okay. The historians at George Mason University, whom I hardly know any of, by the way, um, their identity is much more wrapped up in being a historian than being a George Mason employee. Sure. Uh, and so... If you have a, you know, if we have this pyramidal structure, and if the pyramidal structure goes a certain way ideologically, it's going to sweep people of that ideology into positions throughout the entire pyramid. 
another important part of that is the creation, the cre- the making and placing of new PhDs. I mean, it's the large departments at the apex of the pyramid who make the most PhDs and who place them the best and who then go on maybe a little bit an echelon down to be professors and make PhDs. So we have the micro-level majoritarian politics within departments tending towards uniformity, and then we have this pyramidal structure throughout the discipline that can lead to, to uniformity throughout the entire pyramid, so that practically every professor and every history appointment throughout the country uh, you know, comes to be most likely of the ideological ilk that has come to be very much dominant. <clears throat> That's a rather strange viewpoint for, although comforting, it's a rather strange viewpoint for a market-oriented person to have. Here we have an industry that is somewhat regulated, but not particularly. There's no, as you say, we're autonomous even within our own university. Um, and I would argue that one of the things that George Mason has done wisely as an economics department is to not try to be a top department like the others. We've decided not to go in the mainstream direction. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon because you know rankings matter. Being in the top five matters, the top 10, the top 20. Only 20 schools can be in the top 20. It's a strange thing. Uh, ruling out ties at the 20th position, there's only – and yet most schools from 20 to 50 are trying to – are vying to for excellence. And the way they, they try to get into the top 20 is to be better at the things that the top 20 schools are already doing very well. So it's a very um, – in some sense, it's a fool's game. Uh, but most – that's the game that most – a lot of departments pursue. Um, a department I will not name once uh, – I was once – I once heard about department, departmental meetings there where uh, you know they would – they would not hire so-and-so because so-and-so couldn't get a job at, at MIT. This school is not MIT. It's not in the top 20. It's maybe the, in the top 40. But since this person would not get a job at MIT, they wouldn't lower themselves and hire mm-hmm. this person, even though it might have made their department better. So at George Mason, we've, we've eschewed that strategy. We said, we're not going to be like, we're not going to try to do what everybody else does and do it as well. We're going to do something different from what everybody else does, and we're going to do that as well as we can. And Essentially, there's a market opportunity, what uh, some of our colleagues call you know, the money ball strategy of, of looking for a niche where we can do very well because it's not rewarded by the mainstream yeah. pyramid you're talking about. I, I so why doesn't that happen? Why, there's well, a huge, you're suggesting there's a huge market opportunity that people ignore to be part of this, this apparatus. Why don't they uh, be different, stand out, and, and excel at, at something a little bit yeah. less mainstream? That that is that is the big question. Um, let me just gather my thoughts for a second on that. Um, first of all, uh, we're talking about culture. Um, we're not talking about haircuts and toothpaste and so on. Um, and, and culture itself is very much of a network externalities kind of thing. Furthermore, we're talking about political culture. Um, and so the power of politics, I do think, plays a role uh, in society in general uh, in terms of creating incentives, creating prestige, creating eminence, creating status. Um, there's also the question of the structure of the institutions that are functioning here, the apparatuses, if you will, um, 
And you say it's a free market, but on the other hand, uh, something like 75%, or maybe I think it's more like 70% of college teachers in America are government employees. So it's it's not exactly a private enterprise economy. Um, I, so, Research so, money is mostly coming from the government. It's, yeah, and, and so I think there's a whole lot that goes wrong in analogizing the market for historians, the market for economists, with let's say the waiter market, at waiters at restaurants. I mean, uh, if we imagined a world where waiters had a kind of a job market like economists, right? They would come from a waiter department, right? And waiters would be minted as new PhDs by other waiters, and then as it were sold to other waiters. And the demanders of these new waiters are spending money, which um, they're not all that accountable for, and which come from a whole diffuse range of sources, some of which are extracted coercively. Um, so, so, I mean, there's a lot of breakdown in the parallel between sort of the, labor, the, the, the private enterprise labor market for waiters uh, and, and this cultural market. Um, and of course, there's some there's some parallels, but um, but cultures go wrong. I mean, and then there's all sorts of lock ins that happen institutionally and importantly, individually. I mean, we have to keep in mind that uh, when it comes to basic beliefs, particularly about religion and about um, politics, people rarely change their mind after the age of 25 or 30. This is quite well established. Um, and so it's kind of a taboo, the, the, this, this point. We're not actually supposed to bring it out because we like to kind of carry on our discourse as though we're more open and there's more hope for changing the minds, particularly of our leaders, of the influentials, uh, than there really is. Um, so, so, but, 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 you know, who are the cultural leaders? It's not going to be the neophytes. It's going to be the, the, the people who are locked into their beliefs. And so you can easily have generation after generation uh, locked into into bad uh, cultural commitments. Let, let me let me bring up a, a story that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is outside of of these ideological issues. Which I agree. I mean, it's fascinating. It's a separate. We could spend years on it. This whole interface between your philosophy or ideology and then your academic work in history or economics, and we've touched on it a little bit, but I, I want to bring up a different example, which is the example of Semmelweis. Semmelweis was a doctor who was upset and alarmed and troubled by the fact that so many women were dying in childbirth uh, of purple fever, which was a disease that were in the last half of the 19th century. Um, was a major cause of death of delivering post-delivery uh, women. And Semmelweis had a theory, which of course was true. His theory was that doctors eager to discover the cause of purple fever would go to the morgue and examine women who had died in this very painful and horrific way. And then they would go deliver a baby passing on the fever, the oh. disease via infection to, uh, to, the, to the mother. And that what Semmelweis said would reduce death rates dramatically, and again, he was correct, would be to wash your hands or stay away from the morgue uh, if you were an obstetrician. And 
the profession did not agree with this. The profession felt that the cause of purple fever was vapors or some kind of airborne thing. And their strategy for reducing purple fever was to close the windows um, in the delivery uh, uh, section of the hospital. And there's a wonderful book on this. I've forgotten the author and the name, but I'll put it up on the web on the website for this podcast. And in this book, it describes the fact that Semmelweis, of course, he was sure he was right. The doctors uh, who were much older and much wiser than in their minds than Semmelweis thought they were right about the windows. So Semmelweis designed an experiment to mm -hmm. prove his theory. And I think, at least according to this biography of Semmelweis, he wasn't the most pleasant fellow. So you have a, a – which is often the case with re renegade thinkers. Uh, often to sustain their viewpoint, they're arrogant and difficult to get along with, maybe other reasons. Um, so Semmelweis wasn't very pleasant. He designed an experiment that he did in sort of a half-hearted way because he knew it was right. And then the experiment showed some inclination that his theory was correct. But because it wasn't done very carefully, it gave an opportunity for the older doctors to dismiss it, which they did. And as a result, thousands of women continued mm -hmm. to die until enough time passed and fortunately Semmelweis's insights weren't lost and someone younger after a while decided that maybe he was right and eventually the world came around to his opinion that purple fever was not born from outside but mm -hmm. rather from, from bacteria inside. So it, it raises you know, a, a really troubling and, and fascinating story about the entire scientific enterprise, not just the social sciences, which we agree have their own unique um, problems. But in the physical sciences even, it's very difficult for truth to out. Um, data matters. Empirical evidence does matter. But uh, my memory of, of Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions is that major paradigm shifts often occur through the death of the proponents of the old regime mm -hmm. who eventually die out and can't impose their incorrect views on the next generation and the next generation springs up through this cultural phenomenon that we're talking about. They overcome it only because the old guard dies. So what do you think about that? I think there's a lot of truth to that and that relates to that lock-in problem. I think I'm quite sure that books have been written about the Keynesian revolution and about how it was a phenomenon of the new generation. It wasn't so much that the old guard uh, had convinced, yeah. Yeah, changed their mind. And I, I'm quite sure you can say the same thing about the decline of classical liberalism. It wasn't as though, you know, the Herbert Spencers and Auburn Herberts and, and William Graham Sumners changed their mind about politics. It was that oh, the de Young took up, uh, you know, social democratic worldviews. Um, so, so I think, I think certainly there's a lot of truth to that. Um, your story is fascinating. I hadn't heard, uh, that, that story. It's, I, I guess, an example of iatrogenic malady. That is, I think that's a term iatrogenic, that it's a malady actually from the treatment, yeah, right. <laughs> from the doctor, um, which is, uh, an important concept because, you know, we think of, of social scientists and economists as sort of policy doctors, but really these doctors are so much, uh, are often breeding iatrogenic malady. Um, but anyhow, um, the thing is, Russ, um, it's not, there's not clear mechanisms. I mean, there's, there, I'm sure there's some, but, uh, but there's clearly are other mechanisms which are going to tend to um, 
prolong and persist in the bad views um, beyond this generation because they're the ones who create the next generation in academia. You know, the people at the top have the most and best graduate students, best at least in a bright, probably industrious sense of the term, um, who will be best placed and so on. And so it can go on, on and on in academia. Are you pessimistic? Let me ask you two questions then. Um, one is just what role does empirical evidence have to play in this, which is a conversation we've been having, a running conversation we've been having here at, at Econ Talk, and particular sophisticated empirical evidence as opposed to facts. And uh, you're suggesting that there's no Hayekian uh, forces that would make cultures get better. It's a very pessimistic story. Uh, do you see any? Do you have any optimism? Do you have any any sources of hope? Uh, I guess I do have some hope, but but it's definitely mixed with a lot of pessimism. Um, and it's not that there aren't Hayekian um, factors and forces. I think there are. I mean, I do think there's certain there's certain power to wisdom, if you will. And that always gives it a, a chance in the fight. Um, but on the other hand, it, it's not a free market. I mean, that's another thing that has to be kept in mind. Um, besides the role of coercive taxation and other things, the government is just such a huge cultural player. Okay. I mean, you know, we tend to think of the market as sort of this ever open, infinite kind of space. Uh, and so no one players can matter, but the world isn't really an, an infinite space. It's a, it's a finite space in this sense. And, and governments are just huge, huge cultural players. Um, so, so if, if it's, if, if things aren't getting better, it's not necessarily because there are no Hayekian forces. It could just be that they're outmatched, they're overmatched by, by other forces. Um, now I do think, uh, there's some, hopeful things like econ talk and i and i I mean that very seriously um i I do think that we have to look for um better quality discourse higher quality discourse not that not not that we're so high quality and everything and all that but there's something about talking plainly talking back and forth talking publicly so that we're accountable um that i think all conduces to um well towards wisdom and you do a great job inviting, you know, not only people who agree with you ideologically, but also people who don't. I'd like to get more of them. They're hard to get on. They're a little harder for me to get on the show, but I'd certainly like to get more of them. But let's let's talk about another aspect of accountability, which is, uh, which I know you're interested in, and that ironically uh, Robin brought up in our conversation, which is is prediction markets. I say mm-hmm. ironically because we're, we're talking about our biases on this conversation with Robin, and Robin, of course, brings up the thing he's most passionate about, which yeah. is prediction markets. But you uh, don't have Robin's um, uh, uh, direct involvement in that issue. That, and Robin's a real champ, has been for a long yeah, time a champion. he's been a great pioneer. That. He's been yeah. a real pioneer, so, theoretically. Tell me what you uh, learned from the opportunity to use prediction markets that might improve discourse. I, I think it's a fascinating thing, and it's clearly a great example of um, possible sort of meta-evidence, possible higher-level discourse uh, of the kinds we're looking for here. Um, um, you know, uh, a great place to start is the Simon Ehrlich bet. Okay. Describe that. Uh, well, um, Paul Ehrlich, famous environmentalist, was on Johnny Carson and, and all the TV shows on Earth Day with a thousand journalists saying things are going to get worse. Uh, 
things are going to become scarce, we're going to run out, et cetera, et cetera. And Julian Simon had no attention and was just an economist who, who, who thought about markets. And he said, sir, if you believe in what you're saying, uh, you know, if you're so smart, you should be rich. If, if you believe in what you're saying, there should be a profit opportunity in acting on it and somehow buying futures in these things which you say are going to run out. Um, and, and in particular, you should be willing to bet me that 10 years from now, the prices of resources are going to be higher than they are today after adjusting for inflation. So Simon put out this challenge uh, to Ehrlich, and much to his credit, Ehrlich agreed. And Ehrlich got to pick five um, resources. I think he picked five metals um, uh, that they bet on whether their prices would be higher or lower 10 years later, adjusting for inflation. And in 1990, the bet was finished. The results were in. John Tierney wrote up a tremendous article in the New York Times about it. And Simon won on all five, on all five. And what's important about- I think it was was $10,000. A thousand. Uh, it was a lot no, of money. No, it wasn't. It wasn't that much money. And I think the final check uh, it, and, and the amount of payment was based on how much the prices moved. And Ehrlich had to pay 500 something uh-huh. to. Uh, and in fact, I, Simon told me he never cashed it. He actually framed it, put it on the wall of his <laughs> office. Um, but this, the idea here is that putting your money where your mouth is gives you a much stronger incentive to be responsible and accountable in, in coming to your judgment, right. right? And that's really the idea of prediction markets or betting markets, that people are putting money behind their opinion, and that we would think um, conduces to more careful opinion making and better opinions in the end. And so that's what Robin, Robin is so enthusiastic about, and I think with good reason, now, I talked to him lately about this to actually brief a little bit, and um, there are limitations, of course, to this. Um, there's problems in, you know, what you can actually bet on, um, wh- you know, what kind of metrics you can set up to look at down the line. Another problem with betting markets is that um, what kind of comparison you should make, betting markets as compared to whose opinion. There's always going to be some guy who happened to get the last 20 flips of the coin right. And you can say, well, he's the guy that, you know, you really, really knows. Yeah. So who's the expert here? Um, Another interesting issue that he he told me about was that um, they don't pay interest. You got to put your money up front on your bet, but they don't pay interest. So if we're going to bet on temperatures in 2020, you know, (laughs) and your money would double, you know, from interest compounding, uh, alone, but they're not going to give you interest. No one wants to make those bets. So that's a limitation. Well, what the odds are, but that's a, that's potentially relevant. I think the the, you know, the bigger problem is for me in these issues is you know, I was thinking about it recently. That'd be great if when you vote on the next big spending package that you're claiming is going to cure the ills of the economy, that your compensation say should be based on the unemployment rate that results right. over the next six months. Of course, if we did that, we induce a really bad bill because they would yeah, you do get, things to lower unemployment, measured unemployment, yeah. they'd play to the test. So you get what you measure. Yeah. So that would be problematic. Plus there's the teasing out problems yeah, of, it. you know, there's so many factors uh, affecting it. By the way, on the interest thing, Robin thinks that maybe regulations, you know, would stand in the way of them, you know, being able to pay interest. I don't know. Because they'd be acting kind of as a financial, uh, institution or something it's possible i don't know well, let's turn to 
let's turn to the Econ Journal Watch, which is a journal that, that you started and and currently edit. Talk about what why you started it and how it might you're hoping at least it could in principle improve uh, the quality of, of what economists say and, and are accountable for. Yeah, the journal engages in a lot of these kinds of uh, innovative kinds of discourse. Uh, I think there was a wide open opportunity for this. For one thing, um, you know, everything is so genteel and polite in academic economics. There's very little real criticism, um, there's especially of the influentials of the eminent people. And, you know, well, I've shaken hands with infamy and I'm ready to criticize them and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and others are as well. And so we get criticisms of articles, even in the top journals, sometimes drawing them into response and exchange. We've had a lot of eminent people um, write for the journal. Uh, so you get the back and forth. You get the, the, that, that, the, the discovery procedure of dialogue, of debate. Um, which has very much disappeared in as much as it had ever existed from the top journals. Uh, in fact, our own investigations at Econ Journal Watch by, by Phil Coelho and Jim McClure show that critical commentary has disappeared pretty much from the uh, leading econ journals. Someone writing from Down Under in Australia showed, by the way, as a follow-up, that it's the same as happened in the Australian economics journals. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for for debate, for criticism. It's basically a journal of criticism, criticism of what economists are saying in their work, and also criticism of the institutions and practices of uh, academic economics. And in that sense, a lot of it is sociology. It's sort of the sociology of academic economics. Now, there's one section, all the material is divided into different thematic sections, and there's one section that particularly pertains, and that's do economists reach a conclusion? And, and what we do there is we um, look at what we were talking about before, uh, whether the issue expressive economists, economists who publish judgments on an issue, um, tend to reach a conclusion. And especially relevant comparison is whether they reach a conclusion relative to random economists. Um, you know, a lot of people say economists don't agree and, um, and, and they don't. Uh, and on a lot of issues, uh, like the FDA, as mentioned, um, economists are quite supportive of the interventions. But that's only one kind of consultation with the so-called experts, you know, the economists. Um, I think a more meaningful consultation is with these people who publish judgments because it goes back just like the Sam, the Simon Ehrlich bet, just like the betting markets to incentives in coming to judgment in, in publishing judgments in arguing for judgments, because you make yourself accountable. You make yourself more accountable if you're actually going to publish a judgment about the FDA, as opposed to fill out an anonymous questionnaire. And, and so it's in, by that theoretical reason, it should be a higher quality conclusion and, uh, uh, and thinking. And so on a bunch of issues, in fact, um, the, the narrower set of economists, the economists who publish judgments, do reach conclusions much more so than um, the random economists. And that would include the FDA, occupational licensing. Against. 
Yes, all of these conclusions, I should say, they're not, you know, it's not like they're saying abolish and free market and, but, but liberalization, okay, judgments in the direction, clearly in the direction from the status quo of liberalization. It's some of them more, you know, radical than others, more adamant than others as well. Uh, but FDA licensing, road pricing, rail transit, drug prohibition, postal services, those six we've run articles are on. And in all six of those cases, I think it's fair to say that these issue expressive economists come to a liberalization conclusion much more clearly, um, preponderantly than the random economists do. Um, sometimes we have to infer what we think the random economist thinks they are. Sometimes we have hard evidence on that, but I think it's fair to think that on those six issues. There's a couple of issues where, again, the, the, the expert economists, the issue expressive economists reach a clear conclusion, rent control, sports subsidies. Um, but in those cases, the random economist pretty much agrees yeah. as well. It, it's, but it, but it, it, it reinforces, and I think probably it's stronger. Um, taxi deregulation is another one that fits in there somewhere. Um, so we do these articles that look at, um, the judgments of economists. And this is extremely important because, um, you know, in a sense, this is economists coming to a, to a, a conclusion. And it's something that if there's an impasse with random economists, there's a problem. I mean, why don't economists know the, the important findings of their own subject? Like why, why, if, if economists who study the FDA say we should certainly liberalize, why don't the other economists know that? If that's an important conclusion of the science, why don't, why, why, why isn't the Journal of Economic Perspectives, why isn't the Journal of Economic Literature making it clear that, that, you know, economists who come to, who publish judgments think that? I think the simple answer is that they dismiss it. Yeah, well, I think those, I think going back to the whole group think and status quo and being polite and genteel with even the governing structures, the power in society is part of the problem. And that those um, crucial journals, you know, aren't willing to be uh, as sacrilegious as they should be. And I do think I should say that I do think the Journal of Economic Perspectives has gotten somewhat better under Andre Schleifer who's from Russia, so surely he knows about groupthink and government and the academy. Um, but, but still, I think there's a, this is one of the opportunities that I think was open for Econ Journal Watch to be, you know, you know a little, 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 little tougher on uh, both economists and on public opinion and on the governing structures. Um, so that's some of what we're doing there. How successful has it been? Do you have an idea? Well, it's not clear you measure success. I feel quite good about it. Um, in fact, you know, I've, I've, I've pursued several um, um, kind of wild ideas. And I think this one's the one I can say probably has worked out the best so far. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, no, I feel very good about it. We have seven uh, Nobel laureates on the advisory committee. We've had a lot of eminent um, people write for it. Uh, I think our readership numbers are very good and the trends are, are steadily upwards. We've been indexed. We were selected for indexing by uh, Thomson Reuters, Web of Science and all that. Um, uh, so, um, so there's hope. Well, I guess you could say. But then again, there's so many you're of these. Being, you're not handing out the issues on, you know, hand copied piece scraps of yeah, paper and yeah. dark alleys and, 
I mean, I think there's a tendency of, quote, our side, any minority to feel oppressed and, and, and you know, yeah. put upon by the, the mainstream establishment. And, you know, the glass may be a little more half full. Um, you know, one thing I am optimistic about, you know, you're kind to mention econ talk, but I think there's certainly been, just as there's now much more variety in the media, as cable has allowed entry yeah. to be cheaper, I think the blogosphere, I think podcasts mm-hmm. uh, have, have widened the voices that are commonly avail- widely available to people uh, for uneconomic policy, and I think that's all to the good. I oh. think there's a, it's a little more – the world's a little more competitive. I co- totally agree, and that would be one of the bases for the optimism, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's good news. Yeah. Well, let's close with a, um, a, a philosophical question, I'm, and this is a big um, – uh, maybe a, a box we shouldn't open, but I, I just – it's as we're sitting here talking, it's its what I've been thinking about in the back of my mind, which is you can think of all kinds of different reasons for why people hold the views that they that they hold. And you made this fascinating observation that once people turn 25 or 30, they kind of get locked in for whatever reason, either because it's comfortable or they're now wise or self-righteous. But who knows? There, there are many reasons possibly for that. But you know, I think there's probably a very large – disconnect between what we believe and why we say we believe it or maybe even why we think we believe it. Mm-hmm. So you can think of sort of three broad categories for what causes people to believe what they believe, what they hold to be true. One is we could call evidence, which is uh, empirical work of various kinds. It could be facts. It could be experience. Uh, it could be studies, research. Uh, the second would be logic, common sense, uh, consistency, etc. The third would be uh, narrow self-interest. That it has nothing to do with those things. It just you know you have better friends at the cocktail parties if you hold this view or that view. Uh, have you thought about that triumvirate? I, you know, and the reason I mention is that when when I talk to people about policy issues like whether the minimum wage is good or bad or something, that's a I like that example. So. Uh, you know, some people will say, "Yeah, I'm against or for the minimum wage because the evidence is blah blah blah," or they'll say, "I just think it's morally wrong that the government intervenes," or they'll say, "I think it's the government has to intervene because of the the injustice of the market." Uh, and then there's the third, which is, you know, my friends all believe X, so I'll believe that too. And which of those is true uh, is important because if you want to change the world, uh, it's useful to know which of those is is the reason that people hold the fundamental belief because you'll hear people say, we should we should fight against this regulation because of blah, blah, blah. And I always think no one's going to be convinced by that argument. That's why you think it's a good argument. It's not why your opponents are holding their view. So have any thoughts on those kind of, those kind of issues? Uh, nothing that clear. Um, I, I, I think that those categories are not really all that distinct and, and trying to make them distinct I think could be a mistake. Um, the the evidence entails mechanisms and and kind of logics about how things work, what the evidence even means, um, and what you'd look towards look to f- as evidence. Um, uh, so, so I I would tend to to think of those things as all being as all being kind of interconnected. Um, I do think that. Um, and I don't think we should look for, in ourselves for some, you know, f- 
final algorithm, final answer for what it all is based on, right? I don't think we should look for sort of a foundation. I think that sort of whatever we can articulate as our reasons is very Hayekian, uh, uh, Michael Polanyian. Um, whatever we can articulate as our reasons um, emerges from deeper, you know, judgment sensibilities that are not yet articulated. And this is a non-ending, never-ending thing. Um, and in fact, it's it's a dialectic because as soon as you articulate reasons, it opens up opportunities to criticize those reasons or refine them or something like that. But, um, but anyway, in terms of engaging in debate, I, I think it's important to try to listen to what the arguments the other the people you disagree with are saying and try uh, to work on those um that's why it's so important to get the engagement right as opposed to just disengaging and being ignored uh, which is a big problem um what parts of their beliefs are they putting forward what what claims are they making about the consequences of the minimum wage uh, that that you really might be able to get them to reconsider for either theoretical or you know kind of more empirical t- types of reasons. Um, so I, I don't see any clear and easy answers there. Um, I think we're dealing with statements that are a web uh, and that are sort of ninety percent, ninety something percent true statements is is actually what we're working with. In which case, you know, counter examples don't really disprove the claim. Um, I think that's very Smith. My way is a very Smithian way, uh, actually, of seeing of seeing things. Um, I don't know if that helps. <laughs> Doesn't look like it. Well, I don't know. You know, I think you know. We I started this conversation with Robin, uh, aware of the fact, really, of of my own confirmation bias, and I think most of us don't want to be reminded that we have a confirmation bias. We want to be comfortable holding on to these views. Uh, I want to thank the listeners who, in response to the podcast with Robin Hansen, suggested that we talk about the structure of scientific revolutions, which came up in this podcast, and another book, uh, which I think is also relevant, which is the Conflict of, A Conflict of Visions, which is Thomas Sowell's, I think, deeply insightful book about how people look at the world and the, the paradigm that they bring to the filter, the lens, mm-hmm. the framework they mm-hmm. use to to process the the uh, facts that we encounter and the evidence we encounter. And I think, as you point out, I think they do all run together. It's a web. It's not really, uh, we might like to think that they're separate sometimes, but they uh, they interact. I, I want to close with a possibility for our listeners. I'd like to hear from you about this. Uh, when we started this, before we started the podcast, I was talking to Dan and he said he was rereading uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments uh, by Adam Smith. And that's a book that we have available at the Library of Economics and Liberty in its entirety at at no charge. Um, And I I confess I've never read the whole thing and I'd like to. And maybe some of you out there would like to as well. So Dan and I are considering a book club where we would – I'm not quite sure how we do it, but we would read The Theory of Moral Sentiments, talk about it, and let you – either send in via email or other ways uh, your reactions. And so if you're interested in doing that, if you think that would be fun, uh, drop me a note at, at the uh, mail at econtalk.org uh, address. Um, 
Anything you want to close with, Dan? No, just thank you very much, Russ, and everybody for listening. And thank you. My guest, my guest today has been Dan Klein of George Mason University. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.